Well, parenting is both joyful and also requires some pain. When you think about parenting and you think about that newborn child that you hold, the joy of having a newborn and also the pain of not getting any sleep. I think when we had our second child was the first time that I started drinking coffee. And so joy and pain, you think about the toddler years and the joy of watching your toddler walk and start to run and then you figure out you've got to childproof your house when they climb and over everything and then you think of elementary school years where they're learning how to read and the joy of discovery and learning and growing and then they start having an attitude a little bit and they start asking 50 questions and they start talking back like what happened here and then they get to be preteens and teenagers and you see them growing up and you see you come into the kitchen the joy of coming into the kitchen and the coffee's made it's not because someone else made it but your daughter makes coffee and bakes things and their kids are becoming more independent and that's joyous but it's also a great challenge parents don't often know what to do when they're not the coolest person in the room anymore when their kids are there when they get to be teenagers a lot of joys the first uh, my first introduction to ministry when I got into the ministry straight out of seminary uh, my first gig in ministry world was junior high youth pastor think about that junior high youth pastor so I had sixth to eighth I got a I got a guy not to say I ain't doing that sixth to eighth grade I love middle school ministry middle school ministry is so much fun kids were not jaded yet um, I got a I got I got help over here and I got no way over here um, they're not that jaded yet. You have a lot of fun with them. You can dive deep. They're, they haven't gotten so set in their ways yet. And so it's such an awesome time in the, in the life of a student to learn God's word, um, to grow in their faith. And there's a lot of sights and smells and sounds that come out of middle school ministry. And so one of the things, though, that was difficult oftentimes about middle school ministry was parents. And I'm a middle school parent right now, so bear with me. Um, was parents because especially if they had a child... <laughs> that it was their oldest and they were coming into the youth ministry and so we would start in about fifth grade, like middle of fifth grade to prepare this, this parent for what was going to come in middle school. The, hard, the, the oldest is the hardest for everything, right? It's the hardest to figure out how to let go and how to rein in and all those things and by the time you get to the last one, you're like, whatever. But you come to the situation where we would spend about six months just introducing parents uh, to the ministry and here's how it goes and here's who the leaders are and you're welcome to come. You're welcome to come and observe from time to time. But there was this one parent. There's always this one parent, not to be named. There was this one parent and, and she was the helicopter parent of them all. And so we went through that process like we did every year and this was her only child uh, she loved her child, and she came in, and she went through the whole process that all the other parents went through, and she would come and observe for a few weeks, and after about a few weeks, I had my female youth leader, who was also a mom, um, come in, and she's like, look, you need to help me. You need to help me. I'm trying to have small group. And so one th the third week, I just came in and observed, and I observed this poor sixth-grade little girl with her mom sitting right next to her. And the leader would ask the question, and she would turn to her daughter and say, you need to answer that question, and here's how you need to answer that question. And the girl and nobody in the group wanted to answer any questions. The daughter didn't want to answer a question. None of the other girls wanted to answer a question because that mom knew their mom. Not a whole lot of transparency going on. So helicopter mom. Here's what happens sometimes in life. What happens sometimes in life is that 
We cling to things that we love, and that's a good and right thing. We cling to what we treasure. It's more difficult to let some things go than others. The things that we value the most or the things that we cling to, those could be called our treasures. Let me ask you the question, what treasures do you cling to? When I think about treasures and I think about clinging to things or people, I, I think about about four categories. I think about our possessions. Our possessions. Think about how, how many minutes until you look up and look at your phone. In church, out of church. We cling to our possessions. We cling to our iPhone. We cling to our vocation. And the significance that comes out of having a certain job. And you might not realize that until you don't have it anymore. And you realize that you find your significance and your treasure, even in your job. You, you find it in your vocation. You find it in your hopes and your dreams. We all have hopes and dreams and aims. And we find it in that. But we also, like the mom I described, find it in people. And all of those categories of treasures are good and right. And those are good gifts from the Lord. But oftentimes they press a little bit too far. What treasure do you seek? Um, when you get that treasure... How hard do you cling to it? If your life was like a house, and there were doors in that house that were locked or open, which doors are closed to God? Which of those doors in your house say, God, you can't have this. That door is locked. You can have all these other things, but you can't have this treasure. Well, we come to Genesis chapter 22 this morning. We've been looking at the life of Abraham for four weeks. We've seen Abraham's great faith. We've seen his, all of his faults, both faith and faults, all the way through this. But we come to Genesis 22 this morning. And Genesis 22 reveals a man with a treasure so valuable, so cherished, it threatens to compromise his relationship with God. It wasn't money. It wasn't possession. It wasn't home. It wasn't job. It wasn't dream. It was the long-awaited son that God had promised him. Abraham's son, Isaac, was a treasured possession. Remember, Isaac was the son of the promise. In chapter 12, we see God saying, Hey, I'm going to call you out, and I'm going to promise you these different things, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you offspring larger than the stars in the sky. And then you come to chapter 15 and 17 and he reiterates his promise and not only does he make that vague he says his son is going to be named the promised son is going to be named Isaac and you're going to have Isaac a year from now and out of his offspring your nation is going to become great and so that's the background a father's love for his son turn with me to Genesis 22 and we're going to be in verses 1 through 19 and we're going to see that God tests his servant Abraham with everything he loves the most. And then we're going to see God provide for Abraham and assure and bless Abraham. So let's read it. Let me read it for us. I'm going to read the whole thing so you get a feel for the whole story. And then we will unpack it. So God tests, God provides, God assures. Genesis 22, first book of the Bible. Bible on the end, there should be words on the screen as well. Genesis 22, God's word says this. After these things, God tested, underline that, Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, 
and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the, one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Say what? So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of these young men with him and his son Isaac and he cut the wood for the burnt offering. And he arose and he went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and we will come back again. And Abraham took, verse 6, and Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son's shoulders and he took in his hand the fire and the knife and they both went together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order to bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar and on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took his knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, again, here I am. He said, don't lay on your hand or on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear me, seeing you have not even withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, Behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by the horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this. And have not withheld even your son, your only son, there it is again, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and as the sand that it is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Genesis 22 1 through 19, you have a lot of questions. I have a lot of questions. Your first idea this morning is this. God often tests the quality of our faith. God often tests the quality of our faith by what we treasure most. Now the first and most important thing I could say this morning as you read that and you consider that is how do you find, define testing? How do you define testing? Look back at it in verse One, this is really important, and God tested Abraham. How do you define that? Here's what it it is not. Testing is not enticing someone or tempting someone to do something that would be sinful or wrong, putting a stumbling block in front of them for them to do something wrong. The Bible says that God tempts no one. In James chapter 1, God tempts no one. I want you to think about this in terms of siblings. I am the oldest of three, and my two younger brothers are four and six years younger than me. And so they didn't have the strength that I had as kids, and so I could kind of do what I wanted to them, but their weapon against me was a test, an enticing test, a tempting test. They knew what could push my buttons. Kids, 
Mom and dad, this true in your family? They knew how to push my buttons. And they could push my buttons, and I would do something to them, and they would scream, Mom! That is a different kind of test. That's not what's going on in this text. That's a test that will entice and tempt you into something that you shouldn't do. If you're the oldest like me, don't give in. That's not what's going on here. The word here for test is to prove its quality. To prove the quality, and in this case, Abraham's faith. To prove the quality of Abraham's faith. The word we get here for testing is that of testing metal. Ryan Snell's in here. He's in the back. I'm just going to point him out. He owns a steel company. I guarantee you, Ryan Snell, when he orders steel, he wants to know the quality of that steel. Do you not? He wants to know if it's quality, if he's going to give it to his customers. It's testing. It's heating it up. There's all kinds of ways to test metal, to test if it's good or not, to strengthen that metal even. And that's what's going on here. Think about kids when you go to school on Monday or Tuesday. Think about the next test that you have at school. It's a test. Not meant to make you stumble, but you find out how well you do and how much you studied when you get the 60 or the 100, right? That's the type of test that's going on here. It's a test of quality. It is not a test of temptation. That's what God is doing with Abraham. This is Abraham's final exam. And if you think about Abraham from chapter 12 through this place, it got redundant, didn't it? It got redundant that he was so worried about what? Abraham was so worried about his son. He was so worried about having children. Why? Because he was past the point of childbearing. His wife couldn't have children, so this is the treasure that he longed for. And, and Isaac is about 15 to 20 years old at this point. And so the promise of the son has come. He's 15 to 20 years old, and God uses what Abraham treasures most to test the quality of his faith. Here's something interesting if it helps you understand this. Nowhere in the Bible do you see Yahweh, the God of heaven and the earth, approving of child, human child sacrifice. Okay? I'm just going to say it. You don't see it anywhere. People use this text all around us to say, see, look at God. Look at how awful he is. No, this is not a place in which there's not a place in scripture we can find that both the unborn and the born are the highest of God's concerns but here is what's going on in this day if you lived back here when Abraham lived and you were a Canaanite which is what he was from Ur of the Chaldees here's the thing all the nations around Israel this is what they did to appease the gods they offered their children as sacrifices to appease their gods isn't that awful and so what God is saying here is he's saying, are you committed to me? I would never do that to your son. Notice something else in this text. Verse 1 and 2, Moses, God is saying it's a test. That's what you get to read and what I get to read. But guess what? Abraham for three days is trying to figure this out, isn't he? <laughs> he's trying to figure out, why would you do this, God? Three days. Do you think about the, the things in your life that you can't make sense of? You can't make sense of, and you're saying, God, why this? If this happens, how is this going to happen? Because you are faithful and you are just and you are good and you are holy and you are all these things that are good and right. How does this work within that? God is testing you as he tested Abraham. Abraham had, imagine, I would imagine, the same kind of questions. Is this new in the Bible? Is testing new in the Bible? You think about Adam and Eve when they were in the garden and God put the tree there. There's a test there. There's a test 
Oh, if you look at all the Old Testament saints, you, you can't find an Old Testament saint where God doesn't test the quality of their faith to help them grow, to help them learn, to help them have faith in Him. And then you come to the Gospels and you see Jesus being tempted. Not only is Jesus tempted, Jesus' followers, Jesus says to him, are you willing to leave mother and father and follow me? Testing faith is nothing new in the Bible, even at this point. You see it all the way through the scriptures in James, which we studied this summer. It says the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance and strength. Testing here is meant to produce growth in Abraham. So here's what we see. This is hard. You ever said this phrase? You ever heard this phrase when you say, God, I won't do this? Somebody next to you says, you better be careful what you tell God you won't do. You ever been in that conversation? I was in that conversation about 18 years ago. Melanie and I were engaged and we came down to Houston. And um, as a kid, I grew up in the hill country where there's rolling hills and it's not as humid. And it's a beautiful place, a beautiful ranch that I grew up on. And in high school, I had to move south of Houston for a few years. It was a really rough time in my life and realized um, when you take a shower down here, it felt like syrup, and it's very humid down here, and rice fields, and a flat place. Um, and so fast forward a few years, I'm in seminary. I'm looking toward ministry and figuring out where God is going to take us. And I remember being in Houston at Melanie's family's place, and they're saying, oh, there's so many great churches in Houston, and, you know, I hope God opens the door down here. I'm like, nope, not doing it. I ain't going to Houston. I've been there, done that. No, thank you. God has a sense of humor. Been here 18 years. And I love it, by the way. I'm glad to be here. It's a great place to raise your family. It's great churches here. In-laws were right. But these are things in your life that you've got to be careful about what you treasure, whether it's location or whether it's child. See, God tests the quality of our faith by what we treasure most. And listen, the reality of this is really hard. I'm not going to make light of the reality of God testing. I couldn't imagine what it would have been like in Abraham, to be in Abraham's shoes. There's a, song, um, there's a song by Shane and Shane. Shane and Shane's like my favorite worship group, worship band. Um, if you want to get, ever get your pastor something, get him tickets to the Masters or Golf Balls or Shane and Shane concert, there's your list, okay? Love Shane and Shane. Um, love the style, love the theology, love their songs. I love all their songs, but there's one song that I have a really hard time singing. You ever been there when you come to church and something's, something rough is going on in your life, and you're singing, and you're looking at words and going, I can't sing that right now. I know it's true, but it hurts too much right now with the test or the thing that's going on in my life to sing that song. And they have this song that's really hard to sing for me, Though You Slay Me. Have you ever heard it? Though You Slay Me. Yet I will praise you. Though you take from me, I will bless your name. Though you ruin me and test me, still I will worship you. Sing a song to the one that's all I need. How has God tested you? When have you been on your hands and knees going, I don't know, like Abraham, I don't know how this works out. I'm trying to believe that you are good and holy and right. But this thing that's going on in my life is hard and I don't understand it. How has God tested you? And use those things that you can look back on now and go, I still wouldn't want it that way. I still wanted a different way that this would happen. And that's just honest. But how has that molded you and shaped you 
into who you are today? How has that molded you and shaped you and brought you to a place of greater faith and trust in God? Can you say, though you test me, I will still worship you and sing a song to the one who's all I need? Hard stuff. So God tests us to grow us. He also does something else, though, and this is really important. When you look at verses 3 through 14, he provides. I want you to see how God provides. Look at verses 3 and following. I'm just going to skim through this. And what you're going to see here is you're going to see Abraham's obedience. And it's a stark, immediate obedience. It is a trust that I couldn't have, likely, that you couldn't have, likely. But I want you to see the depth of this man's faith. And I'm going to give us a couple other passages so you understand what's going on here. And what Abraham believes is going to happen. And then I want you to see and remember the imagery in this text and what it points to a few thousand years later. Verse 3. He rose early. Do you see how quickly he does this? I don't know what happened between the day before and that. I would suppose he was spent all night up not being able to sleep to try to figure this out. Verse 3, he rose early in the morning. He saddled the donkey. He took two of the young men, so there's accountability, and his son Isaac. He cut the wood from the burnt offering and rose and went. Listen, there was plenty of room. There was plenty of wood at Mount Moriah. I think what's going on here is he's, not, he's saying basically to himself, I'm going to cut the wood now because I don't want to renege later. I don't want to back out later. I've got to do this now to be obedient. And he cut the wood and he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, think about that imagery. On the third day, so this is a three-day trip trying to figure out what is God going to do with my son and what am I going to do when I get there. You ever been in a season where you don't know what is up or down and you're trying to just wait for God? There's a depth to this that Abraham was going through. On the third day, he lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. This is Mount Moriah. This is Calvary. This is the place of Solomon's temple, future temple, where they made sacrifices. This is the place in which Jesus was likely crucified. Stay here with the donkey, he tells the boys that came with him. And I and the boy, the lad, Isaac, he's probably 15 to 20, will go over there and worship and come again. The ESV says we, doesn't say we, but CSV, CSB, other Other translations say we. The implication here is Abraham believes that they will all come back. That Isaac will come back with me. That what God asks will either happen and something else will happen or he will provide a different way. See, Abraham believes in the promise because God has already promised. He spent the last 25 to 30 years believing in the promise, seeing the promise come to be. And so Abraham believes in the faithfulness of God the covenant promise. Hebrews chapter 11 really helps us out here. What's going on in Abraham's mind? We don't see it here. We, I want more. <laughs> I want to know what he's thinking, how he's thinking it, how he's processing through this. So Hebrews chapter 11, I think we have that text. Look at this. Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19 says this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, this is this text, offered up, to offer up Isaac, and he went out and received the promise in the act of offering up his only son, whom it was said, through Isaac you sh- your offspring shall be named. So God's already promised the offspring will come through Isaac. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. So that's what Abraham is thinking. 
The Bible tells us, he's saying, you know what? I know this is the promised son. I know God has promised this. He's always been faithful, so God's going to, if I do have to do this to my son, then God is going to raise him from the dead. That's faith. That's faith in the covenant promise that God had promised you and delivered on and would continue to deliver. So, why do you think Abraham trusted God? That's my question. Why do you think Abraham held nothing back even with this brutal request from a parental perspective? With this treasure that a parent, any parent would cling to? Here's what I think. I think Abraham had walked with God for 45 to 50 years. It's been 45 plus years since chapter 11 where God calls him out. And God has been faithful and faithful and faithful. Even when he messed up and he was boneheaded, he was faithful to him. And he was there. He walked with God for 45 years. And he saw saw God's faithfulness so he could believe that, I don't know how this is going to go, but I know my son is going to be saved. He's going to be rescued, whether it's being raised from the dead or God offering something else. I believe in the promise. This is why I think Abraham, in this place, in his final exam, could come through. Have you ever been around many older saints? People who have walked with God for 45, 50 years? If you don't have anybody in your life that has walked with God for a really long time, you need to have somebody. You need to have somebody. You know what they tend to do? They, they don't tend to get upset about the things of the world that are going on, whether it's a crazy presidential election or division in a country. You know why? Because they've been through it. They've been through it and they've seen God over and over and over again be faithful to who He is. So I'd encourage you, if you're a younger saint, to find an older saint like that who has walked with God for a really long time, I promise you they have stories. I promise you they have stories of loss. They have stories of deep struggle. But what they've seen is that God is faithful. Put yourself around people like that. Do you have any Abrahams in your life? Are you building and strengthening a faith so that when that test and when those deep and abiding tests come, that you have something to stand on. That what you're standing on is not sand, but the solid rock of Christ. You know what that does? That makes today really important. I know that life is mundane. Tomorrow when, tomorrow at dinner, when we review the day as a family and we eat dinner together, how was your day? How was your day? Good, good, not so good. That's the, that's the teenage answer, by the way. You've got to pull that out. You know what? Even in the mundane, God is building faith. Are you meeting with God? Are you seeking his face? Because there will come days, if there hasn't, are there ready? If you've lived long enough, these days come where you can't make sense of up or down like Abraham here. And you've got to draw on the faith that you've built and who God is over the long haul. And maybe last, the question... As application to consider, where do you tend to cling to most? What do you tend to cling to most? See, here's your second point. Your second point is that real faith faith holds nothing back. It It holds nothing back and trusts God to provide. That's what you see in this text. You see God providing. 
for Abraham. Look at it with me. He takes his son. He goes. Abraham says, here I am. Isaac says, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? That's the question of the Old Testament, by the way. Where is the final lamb for the burnt offering? And here's what Abraham believes, that God will provide. And then you get to verse 9, and he builds the altar. He's obedient. He lays his son on the altar. Listen, Isaac is 15 to 20 years old. He can give his dad a run for his money. Okay? You know what Isaac says? Here I am. He's taught his son. His son likely has helped him with burnt offerings for a long time because that's what people did in the Old Testament to to worship God, to know God. And so his son freely goes. He freely lays there. He trusts his father. And then as the knife is coming down and there's obedience from Abraham, the, the angel says, stop. This was a test that you might fear God, that you would not even withhold your son, your only son from me, verse 12. And then again in verse 13, he lifts up his eyes. He's done this a few times in this text. And what was there? There was a ram in the thicket, a sacrifice that God always was going to use. It was caught in the thicket by the horns. And so Abraham offers sacrifice, not his son, but a ram. And he calls that place, the Lord will provide. So God tests us, but he will provide. He will provide for us. And then last, here's what you see in verses 15 through 19. Real faith enjoys the assurance of blessing of God's promises. And maybe before I get to that, I want to say this. I want to say this about the depths of trials and temptations that we face. The depths of God's provision There's a great promise in the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verse 19. It says this, God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. C3, God will supply all your needs. He is the great supplier. He will supply you through his spirit all that you need to, to work through and have provision through any testing or any time of difficulty that you're going through. That is a wonderful promise from God's word. Philippians 4, 19. But real faith enjoys also the assurance and the blessing of God's promises. And that's what you see at the end of this. He's passed this final exam. And verse 15, the angel of the Lord comes and the Lord declares, because you've done this and not withheld your son, your only son, you see it again. Think future, I will surely bless you. I will multiply you. What is this? This is chapter 12 and chapter 15 and chapter 17 reiterated again. I will continue to bless you and multiply you. And your offspring is the stars of the heavens. And in your offering shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. You see that in Genesis 12. It's a reiteration that one day all the nations of the earth would be blessed through your seed. A lot of foreshadowing here. And so there's great blessing to this. There's blessing in obedience. You ever think about the sowing and reaping principle in all of life for everyone, particularly for the believer? The, what, you, what you sow, you will reap. It's interesting, too, to me that in the New Testament, Jesus talks a lot about laying down your life to gain it, to surrender so you actually win. <laughs> 
It's not the way the world works, is it? You know how the world works? I'm going to get mine. I'm going to get mine. The heck with all of you. I'm going to get mine. That's not the way the New Testament says, take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. God's economy is way different than the world's. So when you give up your life, you actually gain it. You know, in my family, we do this thing uh, with kids. We kind of have this circle, and we say, listen, there are blessings that happen in your life when, when you live life inside of the circle of trust. I know where you're going. Sorry. Circle of trust. If you live life here, and you obey, and you follow But the moment you get outside of that circle and you disobey mom and dad or you do this, this, or this, now you're outside of the covering that God has given you, the covering of your family, and there are consequences to it. And the beauty, kids, I want you to hear this. Mom and dad, I want you to hear this. The beauty of this is you see the blessing. And in the Old Testament, there was certainly physical blessing, and God doesn't promise us that in the New Testament, by the way. But he gives us The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. As you follow God, there is blessing, and those may be even physical, but there are blessings that come in following Christ. And some of those are tangible, and some of those aren't. A clear conscience. My old pastor used to say it this way, some of the most miserable people in the world are Christians who have the Holy Spirit within them, who are living in disobedience because they're living in a way that doesn't fit with who they are. And so when we live in obedience, there is blessing that God gives to us in pursuing God's path and surrendering our will to his. So God tests, God provides, God assures and rewards the faithful. But there's something about this text that points past this text, isn't there? Abraham wouldn't know it. Isaac wouldn't know it. Moses, the writer of it, wouldn't know it. The audience that's hearing it They're about to go into the promised land. They might not recognize it either. But you and I recognize some things about this text if we know our Bible. And we fast forward from that point 2,000 years, 4,000 years from now. 4,000 years back. So 2,000 years later, it points, this text points toward the cross. I want you to think about it. It points toward the cross. God the Father... Loving Father sent His one and only Son up the hill of Moriah, that's Calvary, to die on an altar. And yet there wasn't a ram in the thicket. He was the sacrifice. The Son was the provision that the Father had provided. And the perfect, undeserving Son went there willingly. He was bound willingly. He died willingly. Why? To satisfy the justice of his father and the penalty of sin that you and I now can have forgiveness in his name. He was the sacrifice. He was the substitute where you and I deserve to be there. And he was raised on the third day and brings hope to you and to me. What does this mean to us? It means everything. It means everything. That's why we come and that's why we worship That's why we can sing that our chains were unbound and we've been set free because of what Christ has done on a cross 2,000 years ago. Paul said it this way. And he said it this way about 
like a spiritual, if I had a spiritual financial balance sheet, Paul speaks into this about the great gain this is for us. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 through 9, speaking of the worth of Christ. He says, but whatever gain I had, if you remember Paul, he had a lot of gain. He had fame, he had money, he had it all. Go read chapter 3 of Philippians. Whatever gain I had, Paul speaking, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of their surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish, nothing, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Do you see the gain and loss category here on the spreadsheet? See, here's the final truth in all of this about treasure. We talked about what we treasure. We talked about what we cling to. Jesus is the ultimate treasure. Cling to him, C3. That's your takeaway. Don't cling to your possessions, your vocation, your hopes, and your dreams. Don't cling to others. You are his possession. He has done the work for you on the cross. Receive him by grace and through faith. He's the only aim and hope that will last for you. He's the only aim and hope that will last for you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Do you know him? Jesus is the ultimate treasure. Cling to him, C3. Let me pray. Father, as we consider the test in which you put us through in our lives. Often with the things we treasure most, not to tempt us, not to make us stumble, but to get us in line with you, to get us in a place where we give all to you, in which we trust you, Lord, help us be a people that hold nothing back because we can trust in your goodness and your grace. We can trust in who you are. Help us be a people who trust the provision that you've freely given to us through your son Jesus and continue to provide through your spirit in our life. So we thank you for the way that you provide for us, that you provide for us in Christ and your spirit with a community of believers that encourage us and build us up And Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who receive the assurance of our salvation and the assurance of who you are. And as we're assured, Lord, I pray that you would open our mouths, not out of guilt, some guilt we have to do this, but out of joy to share the good news of Christ to, to people who don't yet know this incredible message that Christ went to the altar for us and died on a cross for our sins and the Father raised him again and he lives and he intercedes and he cares for us we have a risen Savior Lord I pray for people who are struggling with I just can't change I just can't change this about me Lord I pray that they would tap into the supply that you give them through your spirit that you can change them You can do a work in their hearts. You can do a work in their marriages. You can do a work in their family. You can do a work at their work. You can do a work even in their heart, deep and abiding loss. Because you 
word, God, provides in Jesus' name.